Schools are not buildings. Yes, they're institutions, but they're communities of human persons. And that community, not some abstract multi-billion dollar operation like the College Board, is in control of what we teach. And why would we go through all of the pain and anguish and sacrificing hmm. of material resources to just give that yeah. control to the College Board? Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here we are in 2023. So much is going on in the country, and so much of that is tactical. It's it's short-term, very important fights, legislative fights, political fights. I'm told there's even a presidential race going on that isn't necessarily the smoothest for either side. But, you know, as much as Heritage cares about all of those things, all of those things are important. Something we care about just as much is building institutions, particularly institutions of education. And you know that as much as I can, I try to work in guests on this show who certainly are adjacent to the policy and political world, but are doing work that, frankly, is more important than what's going on in politics. And this guest this week is someone who I think personifies that. You have to account for my bias. He's one of my closer friends in life, <laughs> someone I met several years ago. I'll let him tell that story. But Jeremy Tate, the founder and CEO of the Classical Learning Test, is someone who is upending. He is disrupting American education. And you know, for me, I think American education is past due to be upended. So Jeremy Tate, my great friend, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, brother. And uh, Dr. Kevin Roberts, uh, I just want to start off with a big congrats to you. Uh, I've heard people calling Heritage uh, since you arrived, Beast Mode Heritage. I mean, it is. I came the first time and People are like, we're playing offense now, and you are. And so congrats. I, I was so excited that you got tapped for this very important position, and you're doing an incredible job. Well, that's kind of you. You know it is a, a consummate team effort here. And so all I do is once in a while sprinkle in some clarity <laughs> about what's at stake, and uh, truly. And, and I can count on my colleagues in every corner of this great institution to say, yeah, let's go do that. Well, and Kevin, you, you really are one of my heroes. And one of the things you have taught me is a sense of urgency and how critical, how crucial a sense of urgency is to what we're doing. I mean, America, we're watching in many ways a collapse and 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 Heritage is, is leading with a sense of urgency uh, to recover and to remember uh, what's at stake here. That's really well said and uh, much more succinct than, than I might put it. So I'm, I'm sure our audience is saying, man, you ought to have Jeremy co-host the show. Maybe we'll do that <laughs> Let's one do it. Day. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, but it's true that I think often I'm asked, as I know you are, especially about what's going on in the conservative movement, you know, my my domain, it's it's adjacent to yours. And people ask, what what are the big reasons for the fissures mm. in the conservative movement? And some of that would be differences of opinion on foreign policy questions on the, the the role of the state in various parts of our lives. But ultimately, it's about a sense of urgency. And, and, and I don't mean this in any way, in a derogatory way to those with whom I disagree, but you know, just a respectful disagreement that a lot of people who are legitimately conservative, but don't necessarily understand why it's important to be on offense, it isn't that they misunderstand what's at stake. I mean, they mm. love America as, as much as you and I do. It's that they don't yet apprehend the urgency of the moment. yeah, And it's that urgency of the moment that I know prompted you several years ago to be doing what you're doing, the classical learning test, which we're going to cover very thoroughly in this conversation. But if you don't mind, yeah, before we get into that, you got to tell us your story. I mean, you're, you're a teacher. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love telling this story. So, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I, I make a transition from the public school arena uh, to a, a faithfully Catholic school, Mount DeSales Academy, where my daughters go now, 
run by the Dancing Dominicans, as we call them. One of the, one of the orders that's really growing and vibrant, very Christ-focused, beautiful order uh, there in Catonsville, Maryland. Uh, and one of the really shocking things when I got there, and I could say so many great things about the school, but I was really shocked, Kevin, with the power and influence of the college board at this school. And in fact, one of the ways that we would compete for students in marketing with all the other Catholic schools and other privates in Baltimore um, was marketing all things college board connected. And so what I mean is, we're, we're selling and marketing on our average AP scores or the number of national merit or um, how many APs we offered there. And it really hit home for me when the sweet Dominican sisters introduced uh, an intro to philosophy and an intro to Christian apologetics, and hardly any students signed up. And as a college counselor at the time, I was part of talking to students, you know, why didn't you sign up for the philosophy class? These are the greatest questions anyone can ask. And the number one answer was, well, Mr. Tate, there are not any AP points. It would hurt my GPA if I, if I took this class, even if I got an A. And so it was this moment where I thought, this is madness. Here we have this left-wing organization, the College Board, and no, make no mistake, it is a left-wing organization, um, calling the shots for our Catholic school in Catonsville, Maryland, that kids are not taking philosophy or Christian apologetics because the College Board doesn't prioritize and so it was a wild idea of, you know, there needs to be an alternative. And in fact, um, I, I pretty quickly just started calling anyone who I thought might possibly be sympathetic. And not very many people called me back. And, and I called the president of Wyoming Catholic College. This is 2015, before we had a website, before we were incorporated as a company or anything. And I left a voicemail and I was completely shocked when 45 minutes later, I get a call back. And you, com you completely validated the idea. You said you've been thinking about this for a long time. And I, I don't know what would have happened had you not made that call mm. back. I really don't, you know. Uh, I think at that moment, and this has been so much of the CLT story has been, been very providential, kind of God providing what's needed at any given moment. But the call here, we had a college president who saw it and saw the need for it. Well, a lot to say there, but I would say my, my revelation about the college board happened about the second year of the in in the history of the school that I started, John Paul the Great Academy, still not just in operation but flourishing in spite of its founder. Uh -huh. But in in the second year, we we're building out the high school curriculum, and I had taught AP courses and was fond of them in, in my field, American history. Although it was beginning to get at that point to get today what we would call uh, woke. And I realized as I am building this curriculum, we're we're accepting no money from from the state we were in that reviewing the college board requirements for these AP courses, mm. we just weren't going to do it for the precise mm. reason you mentioned about the school where you were, yeah. where, where your, your kids, your girls are. Um, but also that we, we are a community in the school mm. and schools are not buildings. Yes, they're institutions, but they're communities of human persons. And that community, not some abstract multi-billion dollar operation like the college board is in control of what we teach. And why would we go through all of the pain and anguish and sacrificing hmm. of material resources to just give that yeah. control to the college board? I had to sell 
the parents of the, the you know the really top notch students about why we weren't doing this, mm. and we had some other ways that we could help them get some college credit. But to this day, that's true, and and I will say to kind of re return the compliment to you genuinely that the emergence of the classical learning test has has really put wind in the sails of these parents, mm. of these teachers, school administrators to say. What we have been feeling, as I was in the years before you called me and left, left that voicemail, is legitimate. Most importantly, there's an answer. There's a solution mm. to this problem. So tell us about sure. the CLT. Yeah, I love that. You know, growing up, I grew up in Oregon. I remember in elementary school, the teachers telling us that the metric system would be taking the place of the standard system. I remember so, hearing that too. Right, yeah. So centimeters, we learned all of this. And then we just kind of waited for a while and it never, it never happened. And that concept of like actually changing the measuring stick itself is a really hard thing to do. And so, you know, even, uh, you know, today, a great event at the Heritage Foundation, my dear friend, David Goodwin, so much of what they've seen in the success of classical schools is, uh, is using the SAT, using the PSAT as a metric. But what we've seen in the past 10 years is the college board itself become deeply compromised. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, maybe five years ago, the National Association of Scholars released a 40-page report on the ties between the Communist Party in China um, and the college board, and essentially whitewashing uh, the revolution uh, in China, uh, painting a very rosy picture of the, the situation there, um, and further diminishing the role of, of Christendom, of the Catholic Church, um, and, and Western civilization. And, uh, and so this is, is slowly starting to come out and be exposed. Um, but it's, it's not enough to just say college board is toxic. Um, you know, we, we need an, an alternative, and that's the gap that we've been trying to fill. So, I mean, just from like a, a business standpoint, classical learning test is, uh, is a threat to the market share that college board has. And, and that alone is a, is a real bonus for education reformers. But beyond that, I think you would argue more substantively than that, is the content, the substance of the classical learning test. And and, and that has many facets to it, but I'll, I'll let you summarize it for it before we jump headlong into that seat. Sure, yeah, so, so there's a couple things here. And so what we're talking about is essentially source material. What is, what is actually on the test? And you know, Kevin, when I was running an SAT, ACT prep company, I was surprised with two things. One is what was on the SAT and PSAT, and the other was what was left off of it. So what was on is often you would find just really boring text, and that kind of confused me. Why would they choose this meaningless passage about the development of processing of yogurt or penguins in Antarctica, right? Here's an opportunity to put millions of students in front of a text, and this is the one. And I found out over the years, well, the reason is because they have a very powerful sensitivity committee. And that, and I met, I met people on the sensitivity committee, of the college board, and I actually think it sounds god awful. By the oh, way. well, and I think it actually has decent origins. So the idea in the '90s, as I understand it, was that okay, if a student maybe they had their uncle commit suicide or something, you wouldn't want a passage that references suicide. It's going to, okay. yeah, trigger the student, and that's all fine. But it's gotten totally insane. And so I, I met with a guy in Annapolis. He said, "Look, everything is is, is objected to by someone on this committee as offensive." Right. And so we just said, you know, we're just going to take the exact opposite approach at CLT and take the position that if it's not offensive to anyone, it's probably not important either. Right. And so we're putting students, I'm a, I'm a Christian. We put students in front of Nietzsche, in front of Darwin, you know, in front of Karl Marx. Karl Marx is on our author bank, like read directly from the horse's mouth is our. So I, I was shocked with um, what they were putting on and, and this bland, meaningless. And that's because of the sensitivity 
uh, committees and, and catering, coddling um, these students. The other one is what they're leaving off, though, and maybe that's more important, is that the SAT, the, the College Board is 125 years old, and they've had tremendous uh, opportunity to make it clear what is and what isn't important in American education. And you can just imagine as a, as a kind of a hypothetical, if everyone generally knew that, okay, on the SAT, you're likely to see John Locke, you're likely to see Aristotle, something from Plato's Republic, that would have a profound impact on what happens in the classroom. But instead, they completely minimize the role of the Western intellectual tradition, certainly the Christian and Catholic intellectual tradition as well. Uh, students now graduate high school, they've never heard the word philosophy or theology. These were the queen of the sciences for, for the beginnings of the, the university system. Um, and so our thought is that if you can change the test, the most important test, there's gonna be huge downstream consequences, positive consequences of doing so. So uh, your CLT, classical learning test, has been in operation for several years now. Tell us about, before we get into some of the specifics about grade levels and, and, and what you test for, tell us about the growth. Sure. Yeah. First test we ever had, it was 2016. We had 46 students nationwide. You know, we were, we were, I mean, CLT was not like meeting with investors and, and having this big business plan. It was bootstrapping and figuring it out from, from day one. Um, the last test, I mean, since Florida just three weeks ago, Kevin, we're up over 300% and more than 50% of those students are from, are from Florida. Um, and just, I've been down there at least every month. Uh, people have been waiting for an alternative. I, I can't tell you how many people have come up and they say, thank you that there's finally an alternative to the college board. Um, and so right now, this past year, we did a little over 50,000, I think for the new academic year, 23, 24, we're anticipating maybe close to a hundred thousand students. Florida's been in the news as it relates to, to the classical learning test. Not everyone in the audience may be up to speed on that, but it's a really important development, not just for CLT, but for education reform generally. I mean, it's, it, it's important that instruments of disruption, which the classical learning test is, other entities like private schools might be, um, that, that, that they get not just news, but that they get adopted. Hmm. And, and Florida was a provided some wind in your sails. So tell us. About oh, it. it's been it's been wild. I mean, we were in some ways watching the news like everyone else when uh, when Governor DeSantis got in a fight with the College Board, which we loved, and we thought you know we could be impacted by this. And he was on TV saying there's got to be other companies that provide these services, and we're going to look. And we thought we actually don't know of too many. And so very quickly, and they, they don't mess around in Florida, you know, within a few weeks, uh, we were, we were in conversation, went down and met with Chancellor Rodriguez and we got into the legislation, uh, just a few weeks after that. Um, and it was, it was really incredible the way, uh, they advocated for this in the session. It was almost no objections to CLT. Uh, and so it fully tied it to bright futures. Bright Futures is designed to stop the brain drain, keep smart students in the state of Florida. And it does that in a powerful way. If you talk to somebody in admissions from another state, they don't love Bright Futures because they know how powerful it is in keeping smart Florida kids in Florida. But what that has done is it's driven up the University of Florida to number five, if we trust U.S. News and World Report, Florida State to number 20. Uh, it is an educational model, I believe, and I'm, I'm sure we would agree. I mean, I, I know Heritage gave gave Florida number one in their first education freedom report card. And meeting these people, it's been incredible. There is an absolute sense of urgency, as we talked about, to restore a high bar of educational excellence in that state. Yeah, the thing that's impressed me there, and, and thankfully we're beginning to see it, that, that sense of urgency among other state leaders is 
uh, all of the leadership in Florida, starting with the governor, said, politics be damned. Hmm. We're, we, we, we are putting kids first and foremost, and this is the right policy. We're going to implement it. And I, I don't think it's, it's, it's possible to overstate the political influence that the college board has hmm. in the, the, the circles where people care deeply about education, which would be yeah. a big proportion of every legislature, uh, the majority in, in some states. And so taking them on was really important for the sake of kids' futures. Yeah. And, and uh, again, I, I think, you know, David Coleman is an interesting character. He's a CEO of the college board, but people forget that Coleman was also the mastermind really behind the, the common core standards as well. He grew up, his mom was president of Bennington college, you know, maybe the most left-wing progressive college in the country. Uh, he is, he is not a friend. Uh, I, you know, I think to the heritage foundation, educational conservatives. And so we're trying to expose this as well. And I, I think it's almost difficult to exaggerate the power and influence of this organization. So tell us about the test. Let's talk about that. And then, then sure. from there, we'll talk a little bit more about education reform at large, which, which you and, and all of your colleagues at CLT have become uh, real forces. In. Sure. Yeah. So, so when you start a standardized test, there's a couple of catch 22s, especially when you're, you're starting one to compete with the SAT and ACT. One is that you have to have a concordance chart for the scores to mean anything. And so if you're measuring something entirely different, you can't actually have a concordance chart. And so CLT, in terms of what are we measuring, which is a great question, we're, we're measuring uh, verbal ability, right? Um, there's a, a similar section to the SAT. There's verbal reasoning, there's grammar writing, and then there's a quantitative reasoning section as well. So the actual structure of the test and what we're measuring is about uh, as similar as we needed to make it in order for the test to be comparable in terms of a concordance term. Um, again, the main difference is going to be source material, what students are actually reading. I think one of the misconceptions is that there's, you know, Greek and Latin on the CLT. Some folks, uh, you know, who live and breathe in the classical education world, they'll say, you know, CLT is kind of classical light. And we're fine with that. You know, there's no Greek, there's no Latin. And we actually named it the classic uh, learning test rather than classical to try to convey the idea, similar to what happened with Coca-Cola Classic, right? They had a good brand. They went a little crazy and changed the formula, and consumers weren't happy. And so they went back to the original, and they introduced Coca-Cola Classic. And that was the sense we met of like, look, we want to be reintroducing what was always considered a good, serious American education. American education was the envy of the world, you know, for a long time. And we want to be getting back to the, the tried and true. We're almost losing this memory as a country right now. Everybody knew Ben Franklin. Everybody knew the stories. They knew his autobiography, right? Um, and we're, we're, for, we're starting to forget even what we have lost, which is why I think there's this sense of urgency. So for someone in the audience, say a parent who says, oh, I, I, I love the idea of classical education, but my kids are not in a classical school, they can still take the CLT. Totally. Yeah. And right now, especially in Florida, you know, we're getting a huge surge uh, of public school students as well. And so, again, they're reading meaningful text. You know, when we talk to a school like Hillsdale, um, and, and, and they're talking, well, how do we explain the CLT and what it is to students? What we say is just describe it as a test that better reflects a Hillsdale education, right? Again, no Greek, no Latin. Maybe you're going to read Winston Churchill in the modern age, you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, many thinkers that will never, ever show up on a, on a SAT or ACT. So let's pivot a little bit, and, and CLT is part of this, but you are also, whether you want it to be or not, recognized as one of the big education reformers in the country, not just about classic learning tests, but also about the implications for that kind of disruption in the education space. 
As you take a step back from CLT and you think about your several years leading it, but also in the classroom, what's your sense about the American educational landscape right now? Sure. I think we're, we're living through something that is absolutely uh, massive, right? And that, that it's happening so quickly. I think it's hard for a lot of folks to even process. Um, people are asking first principle questions again, for maybe for the first time ever. And, and COVID in some ways helped this happen, right? Parents had this window into what their students are actually seeing. They're hearing on a Zoom the things the teacher is saying, and they're saying, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this, right? And being parents are very busy. And COVID forced parents to be a little more aware of what their students are actually ingesting every day. And so there's a massive surge into the classical world. And, and you've seen this. I don't know of a classical charter school in Florida or Texas or Arizona that doesn't have a massive wait list. Typically, the wait list is bigger than the entire school. I mean, truly, building cannot keep up with demand right now. Homeschooling, we've gone from 13,000 in 1973 to well over 5 million homeschoolers uh, today. You know, you and you and Michelle have been homeschooling for, for quite some time. And what's undeniable, Kevin, is the difference in these students. You know, and I don't want to bash public school students. I went to public school. There are great families in the public school arena, make, make no mistake. But you two are a classical school, a classical Christian school, one of these faithfully Catholic schools, one of these classical charters, and it's incredible. It is incredible, the integrity, the way they can speak to adults, the way they treat each other, the order of these schools. Students are well-behaved. They're wearing uniforms. I spent my first three years teaching in inner-city New York. I was breaking up fights. Truancy would show up every day with 30 kids. They'd round it up in the neighborhood, right? Everyone knows that we're in a crisis, and what we've needed is a solution. And I think classical education is now, I think, front and center is, is the alternative uh, to the mainstream progressive nonsense that's got us where we are. Yeah, and one of the, the less understood aspects of the education reform movement right now has to do with something that's particular to the political right in this country. When I made the transition from being full-time administrator, uh, president of Wyoming Catholic, into full-time public policy, it was not fashionable yet for conservatives of all stripes to be involved in curriculum questions. Hmm. The, the whole thing was a very appropriate and still legitimate response, sort of a Milton Friedman-esque focus on universal school choice. That I want to be really clear. That mm -hmm. is 100% correct. Sure. But it's like getting one part of a four-part exam perfect. Because there are other parts. And, and the most important part, really, is the curriculum. Because as you and I, and I presume the audience would understand, it's not just about the nuts and bolts of education. It's also about human formation. Mm -hmm. Even in a public school. I mean, I understand well, as a public school student myself, that we are supposedly values neutral. I mean, that's, that, that's a little nonsensical at this point. But we're, we're non-sectarian. We're a pluralistic society. Mm -hmm. But even there... There are Western, you know, capital W, Western social mores, cultural expectations that transcend the pluralism of, of all American ethnicities. And we've just decided we're not going to be part of that. Mm. But in the last 10 years, conservatives are saying this is part of the question, too, that we have to have the right curricula. We have to have the right kinds of schools with the right curricula. And we also understand that at, at the, the basis of this – 
isn't the job that students are going to have. Totally. It's the yeah. human person, the dignity that every single one of them has. I think that reframing, while it's much longer-term thinking, is really vital to getting the public policy right. Sure, yeah, and, and mainstream education right now, we're seeing this in statistics, and I'm sure you can quote them better than I, it, it's not producing a love or a sense of gratitude for what they're receiving uh, as Americans, right? And this is where it presents kind of a, a national security crisis either. You've got a whole generation of young people who think America is just the big bad bully on the world stage, right? And they don't see the genius of our system of government and how many millions of people it has lifted out of poverty. Education always is about cultivating uh, the affections in, in some way for good or for ill, right? Um, and what's been happening, and this is what folks are waking up to, is that the education, the mainstream education system is at fault in a generation that thinks America is the big bad bully and that isn't grateful for the country. A country cannot be sustained on this. One of the books that, in, that has influenced me so much is uh, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. This is 1986. And he is he's making a case that any culture, any civilization has to think it's pretty great to even have a chance at survival. That's a prerequisite to surviving. And that America's chances when we're having a whole generation that thinks it's terrible, this is it's not going to go well. It's not going to end well. And this is why there's this, uh, this sense of urgency. It's funny you mentioned Bloom's book, Closing the American Mind, nearly four decades old now. That's, yeah. that's both hard to believe as well as very telling about how long-running a problem mm. education is in this country. And... It, it, it's it's a it's a particular tragedy that reality because as I'd say often in talks to give around the country there are many things to commend the American Republic for but I would argue the greatest is I do argue and sort of incessantly that given our pluralism given how diverse we are mm -hmm. that the commitment that we have made as a people for decades now that every American Every single person born in this country, regardless of who they are, who their mm. people are, whether they're poor, rich, whatever, that we guarantee equal opportunity to the best education mm. in the history of the world. That's the American promise. That's like yeah. the yeah. core of what Martin Luther King was talking about mm. on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, but a mile from where we sit, when he's talking about America fulfilling the promissory note, it's it's not merely about rights, mm. although that's important. It's not merely about justice, including you know, finally getting racial justice correct. It's about education. Because without that, you can't have a republic. You can't have mm. a self-governing people. I'm curious if you think we're beginning to make some progress once again toward that very noble goal or if there are some obstacles still in the way. Gosh, I love that. I, I got out of the train in New York City a couple of years ago, and I, I can't remember the station. Maybe it's Penn Station, but there's a big E Pluribus Unum right there in the station. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Too bad nobody can understand Latin anymore, you know, or takes note for what that beautiful means. Beautiful architecture. And, and, sure. Uh, yeah. America has embedded in our founding documents the solution for how you can live well together in a pluralistic society, right? Um, I think our founders anticipated this and understood this. Um, but again, we, we've adopted this kind of education uh, that doesn't give us uh, an immersion into the way that all of the founders were educated. And so the, the secret sauce was 100% of them were classically educated. They had read through Aristotle's politics. They had thought through the strengths and weaknesses of every form of government, which is how they came up with a system of checks and balances. To really love and to appreciate uh, America and the genius of American system of government, you've got to share in their education. 
uh, I think as well. So that's where, uh, you know, we're hoping to help take this. So what do you say to someone who hears you say that and they say, Jeremy, I'm with you. I, 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 I believe that, but I don't know where to start because that's not the education I had. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, th I think the, the homeschooling parents, uh, the folks that have given everything uh, to start schools, that have spent their own savings to start a new classical school, I mean, th there has to be a, a early adopters, a front line. You know, you were weird if you were homeschooling in the 80s or 90s, right? Uh, but there were folks that were seeing it long before. Uh, you know, you and, and Michelle started uh, homeschooling your, your amazing kiddos, and they were the ones to start to make it uh, somewhat, somewhat normal. So people have to take risks. People have to be willing to put themselves out there and to stand up. I think what we're going to see, Kevin, is, is a new normal, uh, kind of starting to take root. Um, you know, there's a, something in the kind of the classical arena, which you may have heard of, I think they call it kind of the Goldilocks rule where once you get to about three, 400 students, uh, parents aren't sending their kids there just because, uh, of the first principles and the buy-in, because it's just the best school in the town at that point, right? And everybody's hurting. Well, that's starting to happen in the movement as a whole, I think, right now, is people have heard of classical, and there's a general sense that it's it's kind of the best out there, for sure. So, Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm smirking a little bit uh, huh. for those who are not watching, just listening, smirking at this moment, because I remember in the early days of John Paul Academy, the school that I started, we were far from perfect. But we had a couple things going for us. We had a, a real commitment to our Christian principles, which was very appealing and is appealing, present tense, uh, there. But secondly, a really good curriculum. Mm -hmm. Not because we came up with it. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a timeless curriculum. Yeah. But to your point, it was very difficult to break out of this, this zone of enrollment of like 125 to 175 hmm. students because that was like the core audience. And so these... These families, their friends, you know, very, very adjacent to them in the community. They kept sending their kids. We stayed in this zone of about 150 students for a while. And then, interestingly, we started publishing our test scores. Uh, this is before a class totally. learning test. <laughs> and the test scores are really good. Yep. And and look, this is this, this is a school that is a cross-section of the, the population, right? So rich kids, poor kids, kids of different intellectual abilities, uh, each of them equal uh, to the others in terms mm. of their dignity, obviously. When that happened, it started to become the school you had to attend. Yep. If you wanted to know the truth, capital T, if you wanted a, a very appealing community inside and out that is inside the school, but then also where those those ambassadors for that truth, mm. the students were going, wherever they were living. And and the point is to to inject some hopefulness for the audience, that's happening, to your point, all over this country. It's really inspiring. Kevin, I do have a question for you. I mean, as a former head of school, as a founder of a school, former college president, everything you've done on the public policy side, uh, there is a maybe even a growing kind of war against standardized testing uh, in, in general. Uh, it seems to be the strongest in the failing areas that are failing the most. Um, what do you see as, as the future of that um, are conservatives all across the board and how they look at standardized testing? Uh, there's a there's definitely some skepticism there, although it's not about the tests per se, as much as it is about the regime that imposes hmm. them. And so what I would say when, when given the time and presumably on my show, even though you're asking the question, <laughs> I've got as much time as I want, that the the college board is part of the regime that conservatives mm. are fighting. And, and I use regime, as this audience knows, very intentionally. 
I intend to be derogatory when I say it because the regime <laughs> that has that has imposed the weaponization of the Department of Justice mm. before they were doing that they imposed the nonsense of the US Department of Education on us and so some of us got wise to that earlier or sooner than others but it's related to your standardized test question mm. for this reason conservatives ought not throw the baby out with the bathwater I'm a huge proponent of standardized testing very restrained, very limited for mm -hmm. very good purposes. I would argue even if you and I were not friends sure. for the mission of, of classic learning test as a, as a headmaster, as a, as a college president, I need some benchmark. I need some yardstick. It's, it's but one, mm -hmm. but it's a very important one. And so if I can trust that that instrument, that standardized test is at the very least values neutral, I would say in the case of the classic learning test, it's virtuous. It's, it's got the best of intentions. Then that's something that I want to be part of as a parent, mm -hmm. as a school leader, as a policymaker all day long. Love that. Love that. Yeah, it you was. Ask a, the next question. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it was. I think early COVID. Uh, was con I believe Congressman Bowman on the floor of the House, uh, you know, described standardized testing uh, as a as a pillar of systematic racism in America. And you can imagine hearing that as a founder of a standardized test and. I think this is why so many colleges very quickly, and we went from about 35% test optional to about 90% um, went uh, partly because of COVID, partly because SAT and ACT were sidelined, but also because the last thing any college wants to be called is, is part of racism. But what's so interesting to me is that the MIT, one of the, the first big leaders to go back, it was precisely on the grounds of saying, you know what, when you get rid of the standardized test, what you're actually doing is you're going to give the affluent kids, the connected kids, even more of an opportunity uh, because this is the least easy thing to kind of game, uh, you know, getting the patent or getting published or whatever else that's going to lend itself to, you know, so my hope is that uh, we're seeing the pendulum start to shift back towards saying, you know what, this isn't everything, but as you said, it is, it is something in the right context that matters. Yeah. And I'd say as a, as a homeschooling dad and, and my wife would agree with this, which is more important than what I say, because she's the one actually doing yeah. the homeschooling that we're big proponents of, of very limited number of hours Sure. And using the the particular standardized tests we do, our three oldest kids have taken the appropriate versions of the CLT, um, and and uh, and number four will when the time comes. So, the last couple of questions because we you and I could geek out on standardized tests and concordance charts and all that for a <laughs> long time. But for the purposes of the audience, look into your crystal ball on ed on American education and let's say a time horizon of ten to twenty years. I'm, I'm presuming that this shift that we've seen in the very makeup, the very format of American schools will continue. What does it look like, though, say in 2033 or 2043? Yeah, I, I think to really influence the culture, uh, I think that 20 percent uh, is what we need in terms of getting getting that percentage of the uh, American you know, population into these kinds of schools. You know, it, it, there is no doubt that a student who has received a great classical education um, they know how to actually think. They're going to be uh, the future people, I think, that are going to be running for office. They're going to be in leadership roles. They're going to be our doctors and our lawyers. Um, and so I, I'm an optimist, Kevin. I, I really am. Um, I think that um, the, the American story isn't, isn't over, finished yet. Uh, I think there's going to be bright days ahead. Uh, but I think it's going to require continuing to keep our foot on the, on the gas, on the gas pedal in terms of 
um, remembering that there's, there's something worth saving here uh, for sure. So I think we're going to continue to see, uh, and I, I think classical itself is really right now at this tipping point where, uh, and I experienced the same thing as you said a few minutes ago. When we started CLT, we were always explaining even what is that? What is even is classical education? Most people haven't heard of it. Everybody's heard of it now. Everybody can make some reference point of, oh, my niece is in a classical school in Kansas, or there's somewhere where that they have heard of this already. And then in terms of CLT, you know, we've been saying this for five years and people thought we were totally nuts. They think we're a little less nuts now and that we're serious. But yeah, I mean, it, it's our goal to be number one over the college board and ACT. And we want to do that by 2040. Uh, so we've got 17 years left to do that. And we think we can we think we can beat them with, with uh, having a, a better mission for education, what it actually is. And then we think we can beat them just on the basics of customer service, better technology as well. Uh, we met, met with somebody just a few weeks ago, and he said it this way. He said, you'll never find a, an organization in America that hates itself more than the college board. <laughs> it's, it's a standardized testing company that thinks standardized testing is racist. Like, it doesn't know why it exists at this point. It's it Really, it's an icon for the regime. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no coherent, yeah. organized philosophy. Sure. There, there used to be one on the American <laughs> left that we might disagree with, but we could at least respect. Yeah. And it just doesn't exist anymore. So one last question. It's it's a practical one. You've you've already mentioned to the audience why you're optimistic, and that's that's usually the last question I ask. But let's say someone listened to this conversation. They they didn't go to a classical school and they're inspired now. Is there a book or two or some you know website that you would suggest they go to so they can learn more? Yeah, I, I think the book that has become kind of the book um, is, is Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain, The Liberal Arts Tradition, in terms of like, it's kind of like your mere Christianity of classical education. Like, what is this? What? And so that's the first one. Again, it's The Liberal Arts Tradition, Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain. Just go to Amazon and find that right there. So that would definitely be the place that I would recommend starting out at. Jeremy Tate, founder CEO of the Classic Learning Test. Thanks for being here. Uh, Kevin Roberts, thank you. Thanks for the great work you're doing here at Heritage. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope that if you're someone who's familiar with classical education, you, you particularly enjoyed that. But even more than you, if you're someone else who doesn't know about classical schools, you don't know about the Classic Learning Test, I hope that you're inspired to get involved because this is the path for taking back, for reclaiming American schools. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep your shit up. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.